My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Hello, 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 and this is the Subversive Podcast. I am Alex Kashuta, and today with me is Jeff Schollenberger. He is a senior lecturer at NYU. He is a self-described marginal academic and blogger at Outsider Theory. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Great to be here. Awesome. So I've been following you um, on Twitter. I've been uh, reading your blog. I am very, very interested in what you have to say because... Um, I feel like our thoughts have uh, had a bit of a convergent evolution in the last, uh, yeah, whatever year or so, and uh, we've been interested in some of the some the same people like uh, Christopher Lash, uh, Rene Girard, um, and also in postmodernism, which is I think yeah. something that's uh, that's popped up on the scene, and you've been involved in, in critiquing or commenting on recently. Um, especially because of the release of the new, or now it's relatively new book by uh, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, Cynical Theories, in which uh, postmodernism, is, is, to be honest, I, have, I haven't read it. I have read many comments on it. I think I understand the, the premise, and the idea is that postmodernism is a kind of a crucial event that you know hit the scene with a group of French people somewhere in the 50s, 60s, and then it, it seeded uh, the infection of liberalism in the West. And um, I don't buy that wholesale, and I have a feeling that you don't as well. So if you could tell me a little bit about your thesis and, and why don't you don't think that you know it was the the academic singularity that it's presented to be. Yeah. So right. So just a bit of background on that book. Um, I had followed those two writers, um, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay, for, I guess, since they're, they did that Sokol Squared hoax, where they basically got a bunch of fake papers published in sort of humanities and social science, I guess, social theory sort of journals. And some of them were very funny. I mean, it was quite a hilarious <laughs> send up of the genre. Um, so I found that overall, like, a pretty salutary kind of hoax. I think it, it, it was a good, um, it was a good kind of event to orchestrate. Um, so, you know, I was, I was at least, even though I didn't find myself agreeing with their politics or outlook exactly, I, I at least thought they were providing some salutary sort of commentary, um, at that point. So I was sort of interested in this book, um, and it, it's related to things that I write about, which is kind of how, you know, these various these various sort of theories that are often just called theory or called critical theory kind of have spilled out into the larger culture, right? And that's just something I've been writing about for, for some years now. So, you know, there, that's kind of what the, um, what the book is about. Um, and it's, you know, its argument is essentially that um, this, this set of theories that are defined by a sort of skepticism about the possibility of, say, objective truth, um, a, um, a belief that all knowledge is a sort of 
way of um, asserting some kind of power relation and, you know, various things like that, which are sort of corrosive to beliefs about, you know, um, science and the possibility of consensus and things like that. Um, that those things sort of started out with these sort of radical theorists, basically primarily in France in the 60s. And then they gradually kind of disseminated into the American university system and were sort of um, adapted to some extent to the American context, but <clears throat> basically became all about identity in a way that they weren't previously. And then that from there, they've kind of gone on to spill out into the culture more broadly. So, um, so the reason, I, I mean, that my critique of the book is that it doesn't really, I mean, so I'm interested in that trajectory too. But the book doesn't really account for any um, causal process by which this set of ideas would come to exert broad influence. It it simply um, and it, you know the reason this is why I bring up the idea that they use the metaphor of a virus. Mm -hmm. Lindsay has actually gone into this on his blog as well as in the book. Um, so the problem with the virus metaphor is that it it just kind of assumes that there's like a an idea, and it, it's somewhat similar to the kind of Dawkins meme theory, right? Um, which is that it assumes that you know some kind of idea seems to incubate in isolation. It's unclear like where exactly it's supposed to have come from, but then it just kind of spreads exponentially. Right? So the problem is there's no explanation in that account of what factors would innate. I mean, even even if we're trying to understand a virus, right? Like how did COVID spread? Well, you know, you have certain infrastructural factors, right? Like the fact that there's global air, you know, air travel and um, various forms of trade. I mean, in other words, you can't imagine a pandemic like this outside of the sort of globalized structure, right? So, I mean, even if we accept the virus metaphor, there are other things that need to be accounted for to understand how a particular virus would spread. Exactly. Um, and their, their premise is that this is, but, yeah, that this is kind of an, an outside in infection from you know, completely outside of liberalism and it takes hold uh, suddenly. Right, right. And so to put it simply, the argument I make is that um, if you want to understand how these theories evolve, you have to understand their relationship to the kind of, you know, social, cultural, political context in which they come into being and gradually gain traction in certain contexts. So... I mean, in a sense, I'm, you know, I, I don't, I don't think, I, part of what I want to do is kind of normalize these sort of outre ideas because I think in some ways they're not, um, they're not as strange or exotic as people often seem to think. Um, like they're really just a kind of branch of various bodies of thought that were kind of engaging with the shift to a post, post industrial, mm -hmm. um, mode of production um, or to what's sometimes called, you know, sort of information society or information economy, right? And so mm -hmm. what, what a lot of them really are about, I mean, are explicitly thematizing as well as kind of emerging out of is this, is that shift, right? Yeah. So and I think you have to see them as symptomatic of that development and also as, you know, potentially use, having useful insights for thinking about the significance of that development. Yeah, and I think that that was a, an argument that struck me, you know, because you, you seem to be someone who's much more, you know, immersed in postmodernism, you, you studied it, uh, that a lot of the 
the theories that surround it, you know, like leotard were descriptive rather than prescriptive. They were kind of taking the pulse of a, of a change that was already happening rather than imposing, um, you know, a new, a new era and being the theoreticians of this new way of thinking. So they were kind of just describing, you know, a, a decay that was happening or, a, you know, a, a renunciation of meta narrative that was already in progress. Right. And so, and Lindsay and Pluckra sort of acknowledge, they acknowledge the sort of descriptive character of a lot of that work. Um, but what they don't really address is to what extent that, I mean, it seems their, their assumption is that that description is, is incorrect, right? That it, it was not an adequate, um, or accurate description of what was going on. Um, but, you know, like, for example, Leotard's Postmodern Condition. I mean, it's, it's a, it has a weird sort of publication history. It was actually written as a report for the government of Quebec about um, particularly like the ministry that governed like the university system about, you know, again, within this context of a shift towards <clears throat> a sort of information society um, and the various kinds, I mean, particularly the sort of rise of, of um, computers, right? Um, like that was a huge element. That's a huge element of that book. Um, you know, it's written in 1982 or something. No, it's, sorry, it's even like early. I think it's like 1979, 1980. It's originally written, right? But, it, but it's really about how computers are transforming knowledge, right? So, you know, I, I think what's kind of interesting is that <laughs> you know the, the sort of people who want to position themselves as the kind of defenders of classical liberalism or something like that um what they often don't seem to want to acknowledge or understand is the way that the development of science and tech you know that they they claim to be the ones who are kind of on the side of like progress and um the sort of um you know modern pro sort of project of enlightenment and so on right but but what they can't really account for is the way that th the nature of scientific and technological knowledge has changed, right? Um, in ways that make that sort of classical enlightenment model increasingly untenable and just intuitively implausible to people. Exactly. And is, is this the, is this your intuition about what the, the source of our, our discontent is that the actual, you know, technological society and the way that's shifted, you know, the tool makes the master and the master informs the tool. Is that, um, even closer to the truth of what, what led us to, to today and, and the developments that were codified by postmodernists, but not really, you know, prompted by them? Yeah. Ultimately, that's what I'm interested in. Uh, you know, I think my, I mean, from various angles, I've just been thinking about the way that technology has sort of transformed um, culture and our relationship to knowledge and various other things over the years. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of the the missing piece of a lot of those arguments um, that, I mean, and this goes back to you know, again, what I proposed was like perhaps a better model than a um, virus would be a sort of um, autoimmune disorder, right? Where, in a way, the very elements of the um, of liberal society that you know they celebrate, right, are actually 
creating these sort of feedback loops that undermine the the sort of ideological basis that that originally relied upon. Mm-hmm. I think this uh, this is a really good metaphor. I think it's it's probably you know much more apt. But I also see why people would be you know resistant to to take it on. I feel like there's this this you know howling you know void that opens up to people whenever you 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 start criticizing liberalism. It's kind of like saying, "Oh, democracy is flawed." Like, whoa, 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 what are you saying? <laughs> so it's uh it's it's kind of a scary place. So I think people would rather scapegoat uh you know whatever's happening right now onto you know a cabal of dark you know you know suspicious French people uh, rather than really deal with the 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 fact that you know you know this metaphor is apt the fact that you know this is skepticism gone off the rails this is you know interpretation deconstruction the the essential quality of the scientific method taken to its logical conclusion um and it's yeah it's it's quite it's quite terrifying so i i understand the rationale in a weird i mean in terms of what you're mentioning there a weird sort of convergence was that a few years ago um, I think, you know, sort of during it, I mean, particularly after Trump was elected, there was kind of this weird subgenre of pieces that were kind of claiming that somehow Trump was postmodernism's fault. So, I mean, that was, you know, again, it's it's like liberalism sort of defending itself by identifying a scapegoat. And um, the, the interesting thing there was that it's, um, you know, it's often the kind of classical liberal centrist sort of anti-woke whatever types like Lindsay and you know, who are most um, concerned about postmodernism. But there you have like a lot of kind of, li- you know, kind of liberals in the American sense, right? Sort of, de- you know, s- standard mainline democratic pundits, you know, kind of dredging up the specter of postmodern, of like postmodern theory and somehow claiming that that was what led to Trump being elected, <laughs> which was kind of a hilarious variation on that whole yeah. operation to sort of try to you know which which you've seen a lot of just in the anti-trump resistance stuff right where trump is just presented as this totally um this kind of external you know monstrous thing that has um that has kind of risen up and and once it once once he's expelled from the body politic then somehow will supposedly gain some kind of you know um you know will return to health it seems to be the, the kind of guiding metaphor of a lot of these people. So it's kind of the same thing, right? That, that, that liberalism in whatever form has to kind of defend itself by identifying some external invader that it needs to expel in order to preserve itself. And that is, of course, what allows people defending it to avoid looking at the ways that it's it's been a kind of self-undermining project, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, um, that's kind of the, the project for a lot of intellectuals nowadays. And that kind of leads me to, to my next point. Uh, another uh, writer that you've, you've written extensively about is, is Lash, is Christopher Lash. And he's seen a bit of a resurgence now, partly because he was mentioned on Red Scare, <laughs> partly because, you know, he's, you know, as I said, you know, there's a lot of convergent thinking into this direction that's, you know, in a way, socially conservative, but also market skeptical, uh, that's not Marxist, that is also not, you know, conservative in the classical sense. Um, it's just looking at the world and, you know, taking on this, this, uh, this lens. Um, so yeah, I want to, I want to see your assessment. Why do you think Lash is, um, is, is trending? What's, what's so great about him? 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, one strain of it is is sort of the, the you know we can we can uh, thank Red Scare for. Um, I think there's an, another strain would be sort of <clears throat> people like Patrick Deneen and <clears throat> like Ross Douthat, um, mm-hmm. who you know are, are both pretty um, appreciative of Lash, you know, and, and whose books have. Had included some degree of, of sort of tribute to him as somebody who sort of saw <clears throat> saw before many people what, what what the trajectory was, but um, yeah, I, I think you know even just thinking about this year, there's sort of an interesting convergence, which is on one hand you have um, basically people on the left or who have been historically on the left, and that's kind of me, um, who you know for various reasons, but probably the key factor in the U.S. has been the Sanders campaign, you know, failing and failing pretty catastrophically the last time. Right. And, and I wasn't like a, I was, I think I was more of a, a strong supporter in the first time around and was a more skeptical supporter this time. But, um, and, you know, I think the way that that went down raised a lot of questions for <clears throat> people and what's interesting about Lash is that he's somebody who kind of was part of and witnessed the failure of a previous kind of left project, right? Which, or, or at least certain projects that came out of the new left in the 60s, right? And then wrote a great deal that was trying to reckon with that in a very systematic and kind of broad way, um, you know, without really trying to just find some easy solution, but trying to get to the roots of the problem. Right of of essentially why the left has no track has has no real traction in, in America. Um, so that's uh, you know, and that's kind of one of the things that led him to where he ended up. And then I think a second kind of convergent strain is people who you know had some appreciation for Trump um, as somebody who kind of broke the mold of the Republican Party and, you know, advocated for various things that, um, I mean, and this is, you know, this is like what I understood probably because of like some of my family background, but, you know, things like protectionism, um, you know, that he essentially ran to the left of much of the field in, in certain senses, right, um, in, in 2016, and that, that was kind of largely forgotten. But in terms of what he actually did, um, you know, he... Uh, he did not really fulfill much of his sort of populist promise or or any of it, and so I think people who were um, who were sympathetic to that say, you know, if you think about a publication like American Affairs, right, um, you know, people who were sort of part of that milieu or who are interested readers of it, um, you know, that's the kind of world that I'm thinking about, and I think those people also. <clears throat> find a lot of value in Lash because he wrote a lot about the history of populism in the U.S. and <clears throat> both the ways that it's been able to succeed and the ways that it's failed. And those are, you know, so those are kind of convergent projects that come out of the kind of failed, the two sort of failed um, projects to radically reconsider what the two parties in the U.S. are in the last few years. And then finally, I think he's also of interest to people who are, um, you know, even more kind of centrist types, but who just um, have some kind of um, 
critique, you know, who, who share some degree of critique of the kind of hollowness of, of a kind of neutral liberalism and have some kind of appreciation of a thinker who's interested in, you know, the common good and in um, some kind of version of communitarianism. So I think, you know, those are all like, you know, in some ways, like the the trajectory of the past year politically has been like a a sort of perfect storm for like bringing out all the people who would have some degree of sympathy for like Lash's project. Yeah, I think that, you know. Yeah, there's there's quite a at, at least on on Twitter as, as far as I can see there's quite some interesting intellectual, you know, units forming through, you know, there are a lot of like the people that I follow are some like extremely outspoken marxists and uh I'm I'm personally I'm pretty much a conservative, like a pretty old school conservative and um, you know, but we're much more on the same wavelength in this respect where you know we kind of understand uh that you know, Marxism, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't accept it wholesale, that's for sure. <laughs> Not necessarily in a prescriptive sense, because, you know, being from Eastern Europe, you know, we've kind of had enough of it. But, uh, there is the, the actual cr- lens of critique and the actual perspective that Marxism brings is indispensable. I feel like Marx is a bit like Freud. He's just so, you know, in, immersed in the culture that you can't even feel his presence, but you speak his language. You, you, you live, you live his truth, so to say. Um, so it's, it's, it's super indispensable. And I think, you know, that's, that's what these guys bring to, to the conversation. I think Lashes is one of these thinkers that really does bring these two perspectives together. And I've just, um, read the, you know, his book on narcissism and the reread The Revolt of the Elites. And it's literally like listening to someone talk about 2020. You know, I'm, it's surprising to me that he doesn't mention Trump at any point, but that's about it because it's, it's so, so extremely on point that I always have to check when these books were written because, you know, there's, they're, they're eerie. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's quite, it's quite crazy. Um, so you've been, you've been in these, you know, internet circles for a while. I'm, I'm kind of new on Twitter. I'm still kind of finding my ropes and, um, there's this, whole section of Twitter that is, you know, completely composed of anonymous accounts um, and on Twitter. And it's it's quite influential. It's quite powerful. I'm curious what you think the impact of this is or could be or you know, what is it? It's, it's quite fascinating that, you know, obviously, for, for certain reasons in our in our culture at the moment, some ideas can only be expressed if you're anonymous, at least partly. Um, and yeah, what's, what's, what do you think the consequence of this would be? Or, you know, can these accounts be influential? I mean, I think so. You know, I, I'm just, I have a vague idea of writing something about this, but, you know, it's kind of interesting in relation to the history of authorship. And, you know, if you go back in the history of like print culture, you know, back in, I guess, sort of 18th century and before, there was a huge amount of anonymous publication, right? That, a lot of a lot of things were being published under pseudonyms or just without an author attached to them. And, you know, it was really only kind of in the 19th century that the standard became to attach an author's name to a work, right? And so um, I'm kind of interested in this in relation to that, that, you know, similarly what you have, what you had at that time was all sorts of risks, you know, that there was this new medium, right, which was basically print, um, 
as, as something that was cheap and easy to circulate, right? And um, it created both the, the possibility of, ex- of communicating new ideas, potentially you know, dangerous or um, unorthodox ideas, you know, in relation to the church or, the, you know, the monarchy or whatever. And um, so anonymity was kind of an essential um, element of that culture, right? And then, you know, essentially the, um, the shift towards a kind of, you know, model of authorship where, you know, it was expected that an author would have their name attached to something was kind of a, on some level clearly had to do with control, right? It ha- I mean, it's interesting, right? Because we, it's sort of ideologically associated with romanticism and the idea that, you know, the, the relationship with the author of the work is, is essential and that, you know, kind of works are somehow an expression of an individual state of, you know, mentality or soul or whatever. But, you know, it, it was also tied to a desire to kind of crack down on the potentially subversive um, potential of this, of this sort of um, communication. So, yeah, I mean, so I think it is kind of like that, right? You have a new medium and you have a sort of, you know, along with the greater proliferation of possibility, you know, uh, there's a, on, on the first level, there's a sort of loss of control, right? Um, similar to when printing presses became more or less cheap to run and, um, you know, the, the sort of marginal costs of those things went down enough that, you know, many random people could make use of them. You know, similarly, like, that's kind of where we are now. And so you have these kind of counter effects where on one hand you have that, but on the other hand you have a, a, a ratcheting up of the forces of sort of censorship and um, attempts to kind of compensate for that loss of control on the part of, you know, not just the state now, but these kind of private com- companies that are functioning as sort of deputi- as sort of deputies of the state, right? Yeah. Um, in sort of enforcing some kind of conformity. And so then you have this, the reemergence of anonymity as a, a sort of way of um, of being able to work outside of the expectations of you know whatever the current consensus is, um, while not um, you know while being able to at least try to avoid the con- the potentially harmful consequences of that. So, and I think, you know, the fact that these accounts, many of them are popular and influential, um, you know, in the, in the sense that like, you'll see blue check type people with, you know, reasonably respectable media jobs, like responding to and retweeting and, you know, (laughs) engaging with those accounts. Right. So that's one measure of success. The other would just be thought, you know, having a lot of followers, um, You know, it, it shows that they're able to, by way of that anonymity, they're able to offer something that genuinely isn't being offered. Yeah. Um, and of, you know, I mean, it's interesting, right? The, the blue check is very much the, the sort of, um, you know, it's, it's again, it's related to that kind of way that authorship and like named authorship functions as a way of exerting. So like, there's a reason why blue checks on the whole tend to be these kind of, um, you know, just these kind of repeaters of whatever the orthodoxies are, right? Um, Have you ever considered being anonymous? Uh, sure. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess it's interesting, right? Like, I mean, I have an academic job, you know, I'm, I'm sort of vulnerable in that regard. Um, I think, you know, the way I first got into this was, you know, I, I think part of the problem is because I'm publishing a lot of, you know, essays and stuff with my name on them. It's kind of like the, the way I first got into using Twitter was just as a way of sharing my work and, you know. Yeah. Once you're in. <laughs> it didn't really occur to me at the time. Also, when I first joined, I think it, it, it took a few years for me to realize the insanity of the kind of thought, the kind of, um, crowdsource thought policing and all that kind of stuff. Like, and that was actually like one of my major discoveries of, you know, sort of the, let's say, I think I joined in like 2013, 2014. So, you know, the first year or two I was on there, that was like the thing that most interested me, just observing these kinds of insane, um, kind of mob justice actions and, um, sort of witch hunts and so on. And that, and that's kind of why I started writing about Gerard in this mode, because, it was so obvious that that was the that, that that was the best description and analysis of the you know what I was observing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's like one lens that you know I don't really see spoken about often, but I feel like people are starting to pick up on it. And I feel like to me at least, it feels like the the most damning destruction of the libertarian principle of live and let live that I that you can have. Because no man is an island, no action is done in a vacuum, you know, if I keep giving this example, like if I were to, you know, start online sex work or something today, it would ripple across, you know, my family, my community, the people that I interact with, people who know me either online or offline, you know, it it has an effect and people, the mimesis is real. So um, yeah, that's to me, you don't really need many more arguments to, to kind of strike the dagger straight into the heart, heart of libertarianism. Um, but yeah, what was your take on it? Well, I mean, that, so that's really fascinating because what I, um, you know, what I was writing about, let's say five years, five, four years ago was, um, like my big project was like Peter Thiel's relationship to Rene Girard, right? And that's, totally at the core of that relationship because Thiel is, you know, both a libertarian and a Girardian, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so trying to kind of square that circle is a huge part of what you, I guess you kind of see him trying to do. Um, I mean, and, you know, but he's also kind of this weird, you know, he's one of the figures in this weird convergence that I got interested in back then. And I've never written about, but I've been curious about, which is the way that somehow you end up with like libertarianism and sort of monarchism and, uh, you know, some form of or some form of authoritarianism like converging. And that's, you know, that's basically like mold bug, right? That's, that's, um, that's another version of that, right? <clears throat> um, although mold bug is, you know, I mean, he's pretty scathing about libertarians. Um, or Yarvin now. Um, and then, uh, you have like, um, Hoppe, Hans Hermann Hoppe, who's this kind of odd libertarian monarchist, I guess, <laughs> sort of political philosopher. So you, you have this weird, um, convergence of those two things, which 
seems like it doesn't make sense, but I think it is, at least in Teal's case, a kind of attempt to square that circle. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I would say it's incredibly, I mean, you know, Gerard is among other things, you know, an incredibly damning kind of critic of not just libertarianism, but I mean, you know, going back to romanticism, right? It's, it really starts as a critique of the kind of romantic idea of the individual, right? Which is essentially the root of the libertarian kind of vision of individualism, but is also just deeply baked into sort of liberal, you know, mainstream liberalism, right? Yeah. Um, so if, <clears throat> if, yeah, if, if you assume that we're all basically these kind of, um, you know, to some extent, we're, we're just vectors of these kind of contagious flows of sort of mimetic influence. Um, you know, there, there's no, I mean, individualism can only be a kind of delusion in that, <laughs> in that model, right? And that's, that's how he, that's how he frames it in his first book, you see Desire in the novel, right? It's, it's essentially a kind of delusion. Um, so, you know, and he links it to like Don Quixote and <clears throat> various of these other kind of, you know, semi-delusional figures in literature, right? Yeah. Uh, did you, uh, did you find any, any, um, you know, convincing way that, that Thiel squares that circle? Cause I mean, I've, I've read a, a bit of, a bit of his writing, but it's, it's never been anything, you know, uh, to, to, to cover that. He's essentially just, you know, his, you know, he has this whole idea about there not being a coherent vision of the future, you know, nothing being inspiring and things like that. But uh, he doesn't really wear his heart on a sleeve uh, in terms of theory. You just kind of know his influences. Is there any like resource on on Thiel that's kind of hidden that people might use to to learn more about him? Because he's definitely an, a very interesting character. He's like the only tech oligarch that's you know, reasonably sane. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no. So, I mean, his, have you read his essay um, called the Straussian moment? I think I have. Yeah. Yeah. I still remember the premise. <laughs> but it's, he kind of goes through the, it's, it's sort of a post nine 11 reflection on, um, you know, the collapse of the sort of liberal international order. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then he kind of looks at it through various lenses, including Carl Schmidt, um, you know, Strauss, and and Girard, and um, I think that's a good that's a good place to go to kind of get a sense. I mean, his political thinking is a bit mysterious, right? He never quite comes out and says. I mean, and that's kind of the sense in which he's a Straussian. I think that he he doesn't believe in kind of coming out and saying what you mean exactly. <laughs> he's kind of more more about um, these kind of oblique. Um, indirect forms of communicating ideas. Um, so, you know, that's, and, and particularly when they're sort of dangerous or in some way, uh, you know, unacceptable ideas. So, you know, I think you kind of have to read in that way, in that, that kind of Straussian between the lines way. <clears throat> but, um, I mean, the way I see it is, you know, there's sort of a, there's sort of a pragmatic, like version of it, which is that he, <clears throat> you know, a, a lot of his sort of entrepreneurial work and 
the way he talks about it is centered around just the the, the basic Girardian point that you know people people are are sort of um, people's behavior is generally determined by these kind of processes of mimetic contagion, <clears throat> and so you know once you have that insight, it can allow you to kind of be aware of things that. Um, you know, of, I mean, as an investor of like bubbles, um, and, um, as a sort of, you know, somebody running a business of like, you know, who are the people here who actually are capable of thinking independently versus who are the people here who are, who are most likely to just kind of follow the trend. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the way he applies it is actually on that front. Right. And so it's, yeah. it's a kind of model of leadership and entrepreneurship. In terms of the politics, I mean, it was interesting, right, that he he lined up behind Trump pretty early, right? Mm. Um, and I th- I think I think there's a version of Girardian politics which is appreciative of 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 a kind of strength of leadership, let's say, which you know it's debatable whether Trump sort of constitutes that. <laughs> Or is more of kind of a, a parody strongman or something, but um, you know that um, that w- when you have a sort of clearly hierarchical structure, um, you have a. Uh, I mean, and this is where I think. I mean, and not that Gerard makes this argument, but but where you could have a kind of Gerardian argument for a kind of relatively authoritarian <clears throat> social structure, which is. When you have clear lines of hierarchy, <clears throat> that means that um, the lines of imitation or the lines by which kind of mimesis passes are more stable. Yeah. Um, and so I think in some way, I mean, my interpretation would be <laughs> he was kind of attracted to somebody who wasn't... I mean, I think on one level he was attracted to the kind of greatness stuff and the sort of... You know, we're going to um, we're going to build, and we're gonna you know um, we're gonna um, make things you know in atoms rather than bits in America, right? Which is kind of part of a social shtick. But there's another way you might think of like just his um, being attracted to somebody who um, who's in a way sort of authoritarian instincts pointed to a sort of return to that more stable kind of structure of authority. Mm-hmm. That's just think, hypothetical. Yeah. I mean, to me, um, if, if Peter Thiel actually had a, you know, a sober assessment of the situation early on, and it seems to me that he might, um, he might've just taken, you know, all of this information that he collected about the, the nature of the world and just transformed it into his own um, blend of real politic where he's going to use, you know, what he knows about the world to, get to the lovers of power, you know, in a very, like, Burnham-style conquest of the lovers of power, and then take the shortest route to the point where he thinks he can influence the most. And I guess, you know, he is essentially the back end of, of many governments in the world at the moment with Palantir and, you know, the way he takes mm-hmm. his data and processes it and all of this. So I think in terms of, you know, if, if he believes in something like, you know, monarchism, uh, I think maybe his choice was, you know, why not, why not be the monarch and, um, and be the actual monarch? Cause, you know, if you're now the king of uh, Brunei, you know, it's, it's not the same as being CEO of Palantir. 
you, you're right. definitely more of a monarch if you if you hold the actual levels of power. So um, maybe that was his um, his assessment because you know he's definitely not an idealist, and maybe that was yeah the the, the shortcut that he wanted to take. Yeah, no, I mean, I, and I think that's sort of consistent with whatever he shares with Yarvin, right? His, his ideas are, are pretty similar to that. Yeah, I think they're also, I don't know if this is all <laughs> listening to obscure podcasts, I think they work together in some capacity yeah. as well. Yeah, is that the case? Yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Interesting to see all the interesting people, you know, in a cabal somewhere, you know, would love to be a fly on the wall, see what they're chatting about. Yeah. Yeah, no, and this is, you know, I got I got interested in all this stuff basically in the kind of run up to the last election. Um, you know, Teal and just all of these kind of, you know, it be it was immediately clear that there were sort of things going on on the right that were somewhat surprising and um, at least represented a a turn away from you know what the sort of GOP had been for a while. So, so that's just been saying i've been trying to observe since then yeah you you call yourself a, a man of the left and um do you see you know people who are a bit more intellectually inclined on the left you know venturing and becoming a bit more you know interested in being theoreticians of phenomena on the right as well because you know so. yeah and, and i mean i'm not sure i i'm sort of a i mean i've been increasingly i i don't really identify with the left very much i mean i I think I've been, you know, there have been certain areas of it that I've that I've identified with, but <clears throat> I think w what exists today, I have very, I have little to nothing in common with. Um, yeah, I think there is sort of a, a certain convergence, and and just of people who who, um, you know, as I mentioned before, have have things to say to each other, right? Um, and I think, you know, I mean, American Affairs is like another good example of this, right? Just like where they're, I mean, they strike me as just um, a good illustration of like where the real vitality is in terms of intellectual life. Because if you look at left-wing publications, you know, some of which I've written for, they're incredible. I mean, the, you know, it's, it's an incredible um, contrast, right? Um, that they never publish people who are not, ideologically pretty much in lockstep with whatever the, the sort of party lines are. Um, and not only that, when you have left-wing people who publish in a place like American Affairs, which which does publish a really wide array of, of thinkers, right, who are just offering different um, ways of, um, of grappling with the, um, you know, the things that the current sort of mainstream consensus doesn't allow us to think about, right? And, and they seem to be willing to publish anybody who's um, who's offering a perspective on that, regardless of what their ideological affiliation is. You know, on the left, what you see in, in, is really the opposite, right? The, the people who, um, people who in some way um, are willing to talk to them or, or public, you know, publish in a place like American Affairs get totally savaged, right? Um, and attacked and i mean it's you know that's that's one of the things that's most <clears throat> made me feel like i don't identify with any of that i mean i think i think my 
you know, my politics is sort of informed more by like, I mean, on one hand by, you know, reading a good amount of Marx and Marxism and that being pretty influential in my life. But on the other hand, from like part of my family being kind of old, like kind of union, um, you know, Democrats, but, you know, of this kind of um, old, somewhat populist, you know, relatively kind of socially conservative, but, you know, very kind of union based um, kind of politics, right, which didn't really have anything to do with leftism, even, right? And, you know, it was an incredibly strong part of American politics at one point, and it really doesn't exist anymore. Right, because probably because unions have been so thoroughly gutted. Um, so I mean, that was kind of my, you know, like my grandparents um, were were of that background, and you know, that that's just like where a lot of my political influence came from. And I don't, you know, I I don't and haven't for a long time seen anything that represents that in mainstream politics or on the left. I mean, I even find the, you know, I've been involved in like union organizing efforts myself, but even a lot of the unionism is, is very, um, very weak. And, and it it, it too often um, ends up just becoming a, a repository for whatever the kind of current ideological crazes are rather than, rather than about, you know, building a kind of broad, a kind of broad based sense of, of solidarity and community, which I think is what it, what it was at its, at its strongest moment. Um, I don't know. It's just kind of what I've been, you know, so I, I was sympathetic to Bernie Sanders in 20, I mean, I, you know, I was aware of him for a long time before that, but, you know, I, I felt like he, um, to me, represented a kind of resurgence of, like, my grandparents' politics. You know? Yeah, um, but do you think your, your grandparents' politics are in any way possible in, in a world that doesn't look at all like your, your grandparents? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, increasingly, no. I, I just feel like... Um, it's it is a totally different universe um and i don't know what <laughs> i mean i i think there are certain value you know and this is kind of a lashing point right that there are certain kind of values that i think you can hold uh as still you know remaining valid and important today <clears throat> while recognizing that the the particular parameters of that model of politics don't have don't have much currency or potential. Yeah, I think that's kind of um, what's coming out of you know kind of the, the 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 echo chamber that we're we're in, or whatever you want to call it, is just uh, trying to diagnose and see see you know what's what's actually possible. What which of these you know semi utopian ideologies are actually represent something materially real and in, in the conditions that we have by bringing together, you know, looking at, you know, large scale complexity theory, game theory, you know, what you kind of you need a, a form of realpolitik now because, you know, you could you can bring in whatever whatever utopian ideology you want, but um, you know, they're either proven to not work or <laughs> they're probably not gonna just because it's the, the nature of yeah, of, of how things are set up. 
have you um have you read much um Tur- Peter Turchin? Um, I've read you know, kind of summaries of his you know elite overproduction theory. I haven't really read the source material, but yeah, what's uh? Yeah, I'm sort of. I mean, I'm writing something about him now, and um, <clears throat> it's. I mean, it's quite a black pill in a sense. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah, what I was just thinking about, or, or what I was just talking about, right? Because I mean, if his ages of discord is kind of an attempt to plot, you know, the, the sort of periods of stability and instability in American politics, um, you know, and so sort of the the second, you know, what he defines as kind of the second major period of the first major period of stability and kind of consensus is in the early nineteenth century kind of collapses around the middle of the 19th century. The second one is like in the mid 20th century. And so that's basically my, you know, kind of halcyon days of like my grandparents' time, right? Um, when, when there was this kind of, um, you know, basically there was an ability to be like them, you know, um, people who didn't have a particularly, you know, who like didn't finish high school, but, you know, you could still like live a decent life and, um you know, have material comfort and some sense of um, community and, you know, uh, some sense of political, you know, your politics being represented kind of through these mediating institutions like the, you know, local union hall and things like that. So anyway, the point is like, <laughs> it's really, you know, it's it's this very um, kind of... Um, systemic account to, to just look at that from a, t- a sort of bird's eye view and just think about, you know, what are the kind of kind of ecological factors that you can observe that seem to create the, the possibility of stability and then and then kind of undermine it, right? And, and this kind of goes back to the whole point about liberalism at the beginning, right? That, that you know, part of what he shows is that, or, or what he argues, um, you know, I think some people have objections to his analysis, but, but it's essentially that, um, when you have these periods, what, what you essentially have is, um, a relative, um, you have a relative, um, low supply of labor, right? And so that allows, um, essentially the working class to command relatively high wages. And it, it weakens the power of the elite, which functions as sort of consumers of labor, right? <clears throat> because they have to pay a relatively high price for it. And so that, that's kind of when you get this relative equilibrium. But it's a sort of self-undermining process in a sense because it, it creates the incentive for elites to try to find ways to um, push back against the, you know, the power of labor. And so, you know, because they're better positioned, they will find a way of doing that. Yeah, <laughs> and and so they have. <laughs> kind of, so it's a kind of self-undermining situation, right? It's, it's a necessarily temporary equilibrium, right? And so, you know, and he's really thinking about it just in terms of there being these, these inevitable cycles that you can track. And in some ways it, <laughs> it's, it's not a, um, you know, it, you know, he kind of follows it up by saying, like, well, now that we can recognize this, we can sort of mitigate the worst. Mm, okay. So the, the next step in this sounds like civil war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I'm sort of a, I'm, I mean, I've been a skeptic of the kind of civil war, um, 
you know, there, there's been a lot of, I mean, it's interesting. I've seen people on both ends of the spectrum kind of predicting this. Um, I've been a skeptic of it. Um, but, you know, I, I think I've been a skeptic of it in part because, um, well, I mean, there are a few reasons. One, it just seems like there are various forms that instability can take, right? That, that don't, that are not civil, that are bad, but are not civil war. Mm-hmm. Right? Even though we don't have a particularly youthful population in the U.S., um, and and we don't have a particularly big military, um, it, it just it doesn't seem all that plausible but so so the question the question for me is how do you imagine like what instability can look like when it isn't that right yeah i mean you you guys saw it this summer um you know there was quite a bit of instability uh you know a a narco tyranny or whatever you want to call it um kind of sanctioned violence on the one end and simmering (laughs) simmering non-violence or you know little pockets of violence on the other uh, how how these two will meet up and what the next showdown is going to be because there will be one. I think that's the question. And you know, yeah, will will the right wing militias you know stand down or <laughs> will they say no, no, this time we're in it? Yeah, I mean, I think you know it's one doesn't want to overemphasize like how you know that's that's still a relatively small part of the population that's mobilized in that way. Um. You know, to me, what was most interesting and kind of noteworthy was the way that the media, I mean, the thing that I've been like bashing my head against the wall against ever since it happened was like that they, you know, in this autonomous zone they created in Seattle, I mean, they literally like within weeks killed, you know, black teenagers, um, the, the like local, you know, self-appointed security. I mean, it's incredible the degree to which that story was buried. Um, it's, it's totally unconscionable and shocking. Um, and I mean, to me, that was like the biggest indication of how like the relationship between the, the, I mean, even if you compare it to something like Occupy in 2011, um, you know, the current media, you know, kind of broad mainstream media is really, I think just because of the, the way that it's, understood itself increasingly as the kind of anti-Trump resistance um, as sort of coterminous with that. It's really just become an apologist for whatever present, whatever presents itself as anti-Trump, right. Is, is somehow acceptable and excusable no matter what it. It seems like, uh, you know, the, the, the Schmidtian axiom about, you know, the friend enemy distinctions become very clear in the last, you know, four or five years it is yeah. very good. The lines have been drawn really clearly and the media is, you know, is making this distinction for you every day and it's telling you who to hate and it's telling you who to like. And it's, it's, it's quite shocking. Like even, even whatever trickles down through, you know, you know, watching local media, even in Romania, like local media is essentially CNN. You know, the, the friend enemy distinction is very clear. And even here, you know, ask us any of my friends, they know that, you know, Trump is a fascist and it's, it's quite, quite shocking to see it. Yeah, no, it's, um, and I mean, this is like one of my big questions is what, you know, if we do have, if we do have more of, I I mean, I genuinely don't, I don't have a clear prediction as to whether we're going to have another kind of summer of riots and things like that. It seems possible. On the other hand, 
I can also imagine it not. I can imagine that sort of subsiding for now. Um, but you know, what's interesting to me is if there are more events of that sort. Um, you know, once you don't have Trump in the White House, how the media responds to it. Um, yeah. If you continue to have these just really deranged people, like these sort of the kind of people who are running that autonomous zone, I mean, just really, just really deranged and messed up people, like really bad people. Um, yeah. You know, whether you still have a media that's willing to <clears throat> essentially make excuses for them and help them cover up what they're doing. Yeah. What's What's your feeling? Um, about about what the media will do in general now that you know apparently trump is is going to be out of office you know will there be a um an interest vacuum i mean they they haven't been doing anything else but but you know pile on onto trump but what will the new york times do will it you know finally go out of business or (laughs) yeah i tweeted something about this not long ago that like the, the funny thing about the whole failing new york times um epithet was that you know, it was actually Trump who was helping the New York Times not fail. Right? Exactly. <laughs> because of exactly. him not failing. But, um, but yeah, so I think um, the politics of fear will continue to be a big, I mean, they'll continue to try to exploit it. And that will mainly take the form of kind of continuing to whip up anxiety about the supposed fascist threat and so on. So I th- I'm guessing there will be a lot of that. <clears throat> Um, I'm not sure if it will work as well when you don't have this kind of central node around which it can all resolve, revolve. Yeah, um, my fear is I'm that the yeah they're they're gonna try to do more you know lo- more local witch hunts just because they need new scapegoats. I mean they've they've freaked out a lot about the Proud Boys and just you know these these weird marginal phenomena of guys you know wearing matching tops and stuff. It's it's pretty crazy and, and boogaloo boys and all sorts of weird 4chan stuff and you know that that was kind of ridiculous but now that they're gonna have you know this this little power vacuum what's what's gonna happen um i hope it won't lead to crackdowns on people who are at the fringes <laughs> because i want to interview them so it's um yeah i don't know it's it's a, it's kind of a, a time of instability and they will they will do something for sure because they have to make money and yeah, I don't know. I'm curious where the the fire hose of outrage is going to be pointing towards next. I mean, I'm very I'm very worried about the, and this is you know this is another thing I've written about some recently, and you know we'll continue to write about. But I I'm I'm pretty worried about the kind of ratcheting up of censorship, even beyond where it is now, and um, I I think that you know. I, I could imagine with with Biden in the White House, and also like there are a lot of Silicon Valley people who are you know really closely connected to him and Kamala, and who will be who will have various roles in the administration. So I could I can just imagine a kind of um, collaboration between the Democrats and the various you know big um, tech companies to you know. essentially create a highly censored and controlled internet that will be maximally profitable to the, to the tech companies. Um, I think that's, that's definitely on the cards. Um, and that, that's like one of the things I'm most concerned about. I mean, the whole, you know, it's been interesting to see this whole, um, 
convergence on like repealing section 230 but for opposite reasons you know that that basically the right wants to repeal it because they want to be able to um or you know it, it, it they they want to be able to um attack uh, the companies for you know deplatforming them, whereas the left wants to repeal it so that they can deplat you know basically have leeway to deplatform more people. Um, section uh, two thirty the um the the publisher status or yeah, yeah. It's, so it's it it essentially means that um. The um, the platforms are not classified as publishers, and therefore can't be held accountable for what they for what appears on the platforms. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I, I don't know what's going to happen with that, and I I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but I think it could be kind of ugly. Yeah. And I think it's it is a like a, a philosophically challenging question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can't you can't really have an, an absolutist view on this because you know, like recently there was this whole Pornhub scandal, and you know the you know there there is definitely a certain amount of, of responsibility that lies on the platforms. Um, are they publishers? Are they not? Are they somewhere in between? I think you know it's, it's a good question, but. Um, yeah, it's also, you know, you, you, again, you can't have a, a too, too libertarian stance on these things or, you know, you get into the territory of nightmares. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's definitely complicated. <laughs> yeah. I just, I don't, I don't trust any of the people who currently have, um, any degree of influence over them to, to yeah. uh, that's you know, the thing. Pursue yeah. that in a responsible way. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, now if you're on the right, you you kind of have to be very pro free speech, but you know, being a fair, you know, yeah, I'm trying to look at it from a philosophical angle. It's like you know, there there has to be a certain limit on free speech, just the nature of you know maintaining social order. Um, but at the moment, the the right seems to have to you know. Put put the banner into the the, the free speech uh, absolutism thing, um, yeah. Because they're just they're just not in power, and it's it, and it shows. <laughs> it's yeah, you know, you don't want your enemies to be the censors, or else your your ideology is never going to see the light of day. And it's they're already starting to do that. Obviously, you know, I see people being disappeared from my Twitter every day, and they never come back, or they come back in a different disguise <laughs> or something, but. It's it's quite disconcerting. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's... Um, I mean, and again, this is kind of why I want to... I have this vague idea of, like, digging back into the history of, like, authorship and print culture, just because it's, um, you know, I, I think it offers a lot of lessons. And I mean, I'm not the first to observe this, but it definitely offers a lot of lessons because, you know, that was the context where a lot of the original arguments about free speech were made, right? Like Milton's Areopagitica. <clears throat> it was probably like the first major pro free speech argument. And, um, you know, it comes out of that time. Yeah. Um, we had just all these pamphlets and um, things like that circulating. And um, again, that was a period when a lot of people were 
And so, you know, it's, we've sort of been here before in terms of all these, these sorts of issues. Um, yeah. What, what do you see the, the next, you know, 10, 15 years looking like? Will there be more, um, you know, uh, Bronze Age pervert, delicious tacos uh, style books by anonymous authors that gain cult traction? Or will the trend change to more, you know, I don't, I, I don't give a fuck type writers who try to exit from, you know, your mainstream culture and become kind of like indie academics and try to diversify their platforms and, you know, stay relevant and still make money, but under their real name? I think you, I, I would guess probably a bit of both. Um, because, you know, I think in some ways those two sort of ecosystems like feed off of each other. Um, but I do think in terms of just overall, I think the traditional publishing industry will continue to kind of lose ground and, you know, more, you'll have more kind of self-published works gaining cult status, often under pseudonyms. Um, and, and I think that's going to accelerate in part because I, I think the market for that is still like immensely underserved. Um, you know, like you, you mentioned a few big names. I, I just, I feel like there's a lot of room for growth in terms of, you know, just sort of like weird and edgy kind of stuff. And it's incredible, you know, how, um, how limited we are in terms of like what, you know, New York publishers are going to, willing to publish and that's going to get worse right because if you look at what came out of this year you know i think a lot of them are just basically saying they're only going to publish things that have a sort of social justice um orientation of some sort and at the same time um that you see the same pressures in academia right um and so the just honestly like even just mild forms of dissent from that which i'd say is like of what I am doing. I'm not even a sort of hardcore <clears throat> opponent of all that stuff. I'm just like a, a relatively mild-mannered critic of some of it. But, you know, even for that, it's like you really have to go outside in order to um, in order to be, be able to put your ideas out there and get them heard. So, yeah. Yeah, so so I think that those... those um, those pressures are going to accelerate towards kind of greater ideological conformity within the, the sort of sanctioned official spaces yeah. and that should create room for growth in both of those areas that you yeah. mentioned. I think there's, you know, like you said, kind of these two systems feed off each other because there's, there's some form of kind of accelerating mediocrity or kind of like the, the, the bottomization of the, of the mainstream that, if if you just construct this, you know, drum circle where everyone's just telling each other more refined forms of the same idea again and again and again, um, they they even develop their own language. It's like, you know, whenever you talk to you know a, a, a normie about you know normie stuff, you know, you can I, I can feel their IQ drop by fifty points because they they have not thought about this stuff. They're regurgitating, you know, as we speak, talking points from from places you know completely unprocessed. Um, and I feel that that makes this whole mind space uh, completely vulnerable to outside infection where the actual thought is happening. Because someone who's just been marinating in this, you know, boilerplate for, for years, 
um, you know, gets a whiff of, you know, the, the, the beauteous nature of what, whatever's happening outside, it's going to be much more interesting than if the mainstream would have incorporated some of these ideas because the, the, the tighter the grip gets on what's ideologically, you know, what conforms to what they want, uh, the more interesting the outside will be. And I feel like that's going to be an accelerant in, in the collapse of the, of the mainstream. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it was quite, um, quite interesting to have these conversations, you know, like it's kind of like the water cooler conversation. I feel like all of those conversations are something that you, you need to listen to carefully. And that's kind of where you, you should start, you know, creating, um, creating dissenting literature because, you know, anything that, that, you know, the, the mainstream doesn't think about at all, there's just room to, <laughs> to, to philosophize about. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, no, and I mean, that's, I guess the, the good news is there are these kind of new spaces opening up. Um, I think that the tricky part will be if if uh, the kind of platforms that we use become more censorious, as I think they will, um, and and also as the you know I mean so one practical problem will just be where these conversations take place. I mean it's interesting like there was an article a couple of weeks ago that was like you know, podcasts are like the new frontier of disinformation or whatever. So you, can see, you know, that's an example of how you can imagine where, um, you know, the, the, again, as I said, there's going to be a lot more fear kind of um, mobilization of the politics of fear and kind of new, new frontiers for that. So I can imagine, you know, there being a kind of moral panic around podcasts that, you know, means that they have to be censored or deplatformed and so on. So, you know, it'll create practical problems in terms of how you get your ideas out there. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the encouragement, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's also what, I mean, hey, you know, forbidden stuff is also always going to be boring and cool. Yeah. That's, that's my shtick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel about, like, I, I mean, I was, like, when I was a teenager, kind of in the, in the nineties, like in New York. And you know, I was kind of like seeing the last gasp of like the punk scene <clears throat> as it, as it was ceasing to exist at that time. And there were some like very edgy clubs you could go to, which were like so smoky that you, know, you could barely like see your way across the room and stuff. And I mean, it's been interesting just like encountering these fringe areas of online culture and feeling like, you know, my relationships <laughs> to some of this material is like very similar to how I felt as a, as a teenager, but it's kind of cooler because it's actually like better and <laughs> like higher quality stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, it, dep it depends, you know, there's always kind of the limit between what is, what is fringe and what is, uh, you know, absolutely unacceptable and we're going to kick you off the internet. <laughs> so I'm happy to be fringe, but yeah, not not that happy to be kicked off the internet because at the moment it's quite a you know a consolidated place. You know these these people talk amongst each other. You could be put on a on a on a list, and you know maybe you can have a parlor account, maybe not. Maybe they'll they'll suspend parlor as well. So yeah, there's um yeah you want to you want to be fringe, but not too fringe. <laughs> Exactly. And you are a, uh, a lecturer at NYU, uh, NYU being a, a kind of a bit of an epicenter of, of some of these conversations sometimes. Um, what's, what's your experience being in the, in the midst of academia, this, uh, this apparent, uh, den of indoctrination and, and moral decay? Um, 
Well, I'll, I'll mention a story that came up recently, um, which relates to that, although not that I'm not personally involved in at least yet. But um, I guess my experience has been, you know, I sort of teach in a relatively marginal and kind of low status part of the university, which is that basically I teach undergraduates mostly writing and kind of research skills and things like that. Um, so I don't have a great deal of like um, academic glory, um, but you know, it's, um, it, it, it's, I think overall the students are mostly fine. Um, like they're not, they're not as sort of, I don't know, <laughs> not as much of a monoculture as people might imagine. Um, mm-hmm. and they're often like pretty open to discussing things and not, you know, not having clear, I mean, particularly cause I often teach like for, you know, freshmen. So they're just kind of still in formation. So that's, that's pretty interesting. And I mean, I teach a lot of international students. Um, so, you know, I think when you're doing that, you're getting perspectives that are definitely like well outside of the American kind of liberal arts, you know, elite university monoculture. Um, so, you know, I find it's, it's in terms of my classes, it's still possible to have like pretty broad and open-ended conversations. And because I'm not, I don't know, like, again, I'm, like, pretty low status. Um, <clears throat> you know, I'm not a, ten- like, I'm not on the tenure track. I'm not, um, my research is not uh, part of my, like, portfolio as an employee. I'm basically evaluated purely on teaching and, like, service and things like that. So in that sense, like, within the university pecking order, I'm, like, very low although not the lowest. And as a result of that, like there's less of a spotlight on me. So I, I don't, um, I don't find it all that. I don't find there are that many pressures on me to conform. Mm-hmm. People just don't care about me that much. <laughs> it's like, it's if you're a higher profile person that, you know, you're more likely to get kind of become the center of a, of a, a bigger target. Yeah. So, and this is why I bring this up. Like, so an interesting case that came up at NYU this semester was a very prominent, you know, unlike me, like prominent tenured professor named Mark Crispin Miller, who's a, um, you know, quite well-known figure, media studies scholar, um, you know, who's sort of been controversial for a while. I mean, he was like regard, you know, he was regarded as like a not, I mean, he, he's been sympathetic to various things that have been thought of as like conspiracy theories over the years, including like 9-11 trutherism and so on. But in any case, he, um, but he had tenure, so whatever, he got away with it. But, um, this semester, he, um, in a class on propaganda, he brought up, um, masks and the whole question of, like, how it came to be that we're all expected to wear masks, um, and how that discourse sort of pivoted earlier this year, you know, because there were a few, a month or two at least where <clears throat> the messaging was mostly like, don't wear masks. It's not going to help, you know, unless you're actually infected. It's, um, it's, uh, you know, it'll provide a false sense of safety, but it won't actually do anything. Right. And then it kind of pivoted to, you must wear masks. If you don't wear masks, you're killing people. And so on. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know how that was in, in Romania, but, um, here Same. it was pretty dramatic. Um, and so he just said, you know, within the context of propaganda, you know, it would be worth investigating, like, how that shift came about and, you know, what the, 
relationship of those kind of aggressive messaging campaigns was to the the actual science, right? And so a student complained about this um, on Twitter and said that he was telling the students like not to wear masks and like to violate NYU's, um, you know, because if you're in if you're on campus at NYU, of course you have to be masked everywhere right now, right? I've I've been teaching remotely, so it has affected me, but. <clears throat> But in any case, um, so there's been kind of a controversy between him and his department and the university around, um, you know, on one hand, this kind of university man- mask mandate, right? And then on the other hand, the freedom to have this kind of a discussion in his class. Right? Um, so, I mean, so that's very interesting and pretty dis- the way he's been treated is, to my mind, pretty discouraging. Um, as far as NYU valuing academic freedom. But um, the other thing that interests me about it is the way that um, I think this COVID stuff, to a degree that people haven't quite grasped yet, is like a new frontier in the kind of pro-censorship arguments. Because previously, over the last few years, the pro-censorship argument has basically been like, these, you know, some of these ideas are dangerous but then the basis for that has been like these statistically very rare events, you know, basically mass shootings where like some guy who's allegedly was radicalized on 4chan or something, um, or on YouTube, like kills a bunch of people. But, you know, statistically those are incredibly rare, right. In the scheme of like the entire population. So it's, it's ultimately a pretty weak argument, right. Because you have to claim that like these ideas are dangerous because there are these, you know, mediatically, heavily covered, but ultimately small events. But now what you have is if you can get people to accept the idea that not wearing masks is literally killing people or whatever, or not socially distancing is literally killing people, then all you have to say is, well, you know, these having free reign to express ideas on these platforms is dangerous because it allows people to spread, you know, anti-masking messages that might kill thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, right? So in other words, the because this argument is much more, I mean, it sounds much more robust, right? Because it, um, it claims that, well, you know, if you, if you allow people to make these arguments, then it'll lead directly to people disobeying these measures and thus killing hundreds of thousands of people. So I think that's definitely going to continue to be used more and more as a pro censorship argument. And what's interesting is the way the also that the the rhetoric of like contagion of ideas, which we've kind of come back to a few times in different ways, um, kind of mirrors the 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 contagion of the virus itself, right? That that somehow the the argument for censorship in that idea is like joined at the hip with the um, with the social distancing measures themselves, right? That you have to restrict exchange of ideas for the same reason that you have to restrict um, interaction between people, right? Or you have to, you have to sort of muzzle people online for the same reason that you have to make people wear masks. <laughs> um, so it's interesting how those two things have totally converged. And I mean, that's, that's one thing that kind of worries me about um, how, how COVID is going to be, used to um 
it's, it's going to be used as the basis for other kinds of restrictions, I fear, that will continue to affect us for years to come. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's to me it was, you know, just a just a dress rehearsal for executive flexing. You know, the the fact that it's uh you know, you know, two weeks to save the NHS, I still remember it, uh, you know, to flatten the curve so not overwhelm the hospitals. Oh my my, how how have the times changed? It's been it's been almost a year since and we've been in successive lockdowns. We've been, you know, just drowning in restrictions for 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 years and i don't really see this changing now especially with the new strains there are new strains with very different specificities and we don't know anything about and i have a feeling these new strains will pop up out of everywhere and will you know will be the basis for a lot of you know restrictions uh, conformity um and i think it's also really interesting how the, the narrative about covid has mapped onto the political divide so so fast um, and how it's shifted as well, because I think the initial people who were kind of sounding the alarm about COVID were people on the right um, who were concerned. And, you know, obviously people like Nancy Pelosi told us that it's just quite racist to not, you know, go to Chinatown and, and you know, <laughs> patronize the <laughs> restaurants and things like that. Um, and then, you know, a few months later, uh, only only a Trump supporter would uh, would, you know, have anything to say about the mask mandate, which flipped, as you said, a few times, you know, so. Um, yeah. Now, I think there's, you know, the, the the criticism towards this NYU professor, you know, might also have something to do with the the utter, uh, you know, gracelessness of being someone who has anything to say about masks because you know, only a Trump supporter would. So it's, um, it's, I mean, it's interesting. When I posted about this, I had a bunch of people kind of basically claiming, oh well, like the mask thing just changed because like we didn't know at first, and then like. The, you know, evidence came in, and that's why I changed. It's like totally not true. I mean, I, what evidence? I mean, th there's um, I just I was going to share this uh, this morning, but haven't gotten around to it yet. But, you know, there's a meta-analysis from September um, called "Effectiveness of Surgical Face Masks in Reducing Acute Respiratory Infections in Non-Healthcare Settings." Right. So <laughs> the conclusion that you find in the abstract is. Surgical mask wearing among individuals in non-healthcare settings is not significantly associated with reduction in ARI incidents in this meta review. Okay, so that's yeah. uh, you know it's a it's a peer-reviewed article from just a few months ago, and um, it's you know it, it totally flies in the face of the yeah but... you know what we're being told is the scientific consensus. Yeah, Jeff, and you know if the... it. If it flies in the face of any anything that is called the scientific consensus, it, it it by definition cannot be part of the scientific consensus. So you can forget about it. This is fringe science that you're that you're citing here. And it's I mean, and um, you can find other studies that are a bit more bullish on the you know efficacy of masks, but they're still like really tentative. I mean, the language is always like this suggests that there may be <laughs> you know um, so the. The disconnect between the kind of public health rhetoric and the, you know, whatever studies, like legitimate sort of peer-reviewed evidence-based studies actually exist is, is huge right now. Um, and, you know, but yet you have people who are, people who will tell you you're a conspiracy theorist just for pointing this out. Um, yeah. you know, conspiracy theory is, I mean, and this is something... Um, if you listen to the going back to Red Scare, if you listen to their episode with Mark Crispin Miller, this NYU professor, 
you know, he points out that historically conspiracy theory is, I mean, you can actually trade. There's a book by this guy named Lance DeHaven Smith, which I read a number of years ago, which kind of goes into this. But, you know, conspiracy theory was actually like kind of invented. I mean, speaking <laughs> in rough terms, it was basically invented by the deep state as a way of like discrediting <laughs> criticism of the CIA. Deep state is another conspiracy theory, Jeff. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. But, you know, it's like, you can actually find documentation that's been obtained by FOIA and stuff that like shows they're like, okay, we have to start calling anybody who objects to this stuff conspiracy theorists. <laughs> or anybody who has like questions about the Kennedy assassination, they're conspiracy theorists. Or, you know, with the Pro stuff in the 60s and 70s, it was like, <clears throat> the FBI was like, well, if you, if, if you claim that your, you know, anti-war organization is being bugged, then you know, we've just got to, like, seed the idea to the media that these people are just conspiracy theorists. Um, yeah. So there's, like, quite a, you know, there's quite a history of that term just being deployed to, like, police um, any kind of criticism of the state. And uh, what's interesting is now on Twitter and so on, you see people who just deputize themselves to call people conspiracy theorists. Yeah, the d- debunkers. Yeah, exactly, the debunkers. <laughs> cool, Jeff. Well, um, there is one more question I want to ask everyone who comes on the show. Mm-hmm. Is um, is there any um, academic or writer or thinker that you can think of that you know you would deem subversive and uh, you would uh, like people to know about? That's, you know, not, not known of either in mainstream or in our more, you know, arcane <laughs> circles. Um, is there some idea or thinker that's floating around there that you think might need a bit more, um, exposure or that people would be, you know, enlightened if they, if they heard about? Um, so somebody who's, who I, whose newsletter I always recommend. And I don't know how subvert, I mean, he's kind of a, you know, he's not like a super well known person. Person, but I think is like has something of a cult following is um, <clears throat> L.M. Sacassus. He has a um, a newsletter called um, the Convivial Society, and you know it's it's roughly about sort of technology and society. Mm-hmm. And I think he's just a what he does do is work with um, thinkers who are a bit. I mean, somebody who I who I really, who was very influential on me as a, as an intellectual was, um, as I was Ivan Illich, um, who's, who's, I think still yet to have his kind of rediscovery in the way that Lash has had recently, or maybe Girard is having. Um, but I think he's a really, really crucial figure, um, and thinker and very, I mean, definitely very subversive. So one, one of the values of, <clears throat> of Sacassus's newsletter is he writes a lot about Illich um, and kind of applies his ideas to the to the present. Um, and the, the you know the name the Convivial Society comes out of one of the titles the title of one of Illich's books. So I guess I would I would make a combined recommendation. One is read Ivan Illich, um, and the other is read Ellen um, Sacassus's newsletter. A lot of which is dedicated to kind of thinking about Illich's relevance today. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And is there anything else you'd like to, to chat about that we might not have covered or anything you'd like to, to boost? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I'm always trying to boost my blog, Outsider Theory, outsidertheory.com. 
Um, so check that out if you haven't. Yeah, I can attest to. Uh, it's it's a very good it's a very good blog, and I, I recommend it. I just signed up to your newsletter as well today. Yeah. yeah, and I haven't started the newsletter yet. I've been waiting to reach a critical mass of people signing up, but um, I'm guessing I will start it up actually around the new year. That's my my plan to kind of do a survey of the progress of the blog so far in my first newsletter. And I'm working on a blog post called Fury Cells in Trump World. So Ooh, sounds forward. good. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that's that's the main thing I would plug. But um, it's been really nice talking to you. I mean, I feel like in some ways we've had a certain parallel trajectory this year of kind of leaning into Twitter more. <laughs> as In my case, it was definitely like, because I, you know, I had an account for some years and was kind of on and off it for a while. Um, but I really leaned into it directly because of the lockdown um, and just was suddenly tweeting a lot more and spending a lot more time there. It seems like you did something similar as my impression. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was actually I got onto, you know, Justin Murphy's Indie Thinkers community. And I think someone posted like a thread about, you know, Twitter or something. I don't, I don't remember exactly. I was like, Oh, yeah, Twitter. <laughs> okay, <laughs> to get on there. I mean, I'm a writer on the internet. I've, I've kind of been avoiding it because I've, I've been on Twitter, like maybe you know, a handful of times and I was scrolling through and I got really, really angry a few times. And I was like, man, the, the power of this platform, Jesus, it just, you know, <laughs> takes me out of it. Uh, but then I was like, okay, you know, you, you want to be a, you know, writer on the internet, you need to be on Twitter. So I did it. Um, and it's been, it's been really cool. Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's, you know, it's very addictive. It's crazy addictive, but also very cool. Yeah. Well, and, and you've been, um, incredibly, illuminating to follow this year so. oh thank you so much so the same to you i mean i that's why i wanted to have you on and you know there's you know rarely a tweet of yours that i can't uh, you know that don't resonate with it's yeah yeah likewise um and yeah it's i mean i, I don't know what your experience has been but i also kind of hated it what's well, weird i was i was writing about it and studying it like <laughs> going back like years but um i kind of hated the toxicity of it um, so, but I, I feel like there are some simple things you can do that make it a more fun and less kind of <laughs> like outrage producing experience. Um, just in terms of curating who you follow really well, you know, using the mute and block buttons. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I, yeah. I think finding, I mean, to me, it's like probably just been finding people who I can follow, who I can learn a lot from, yourself included. And, uh, you know, that's made it a, a, an experience that's like almost too enriching, as you say, which adds to the addictiveness of it. But it yeah. also makes it kind of pleasant and fun rather than like toxic and nasty. Exactly. So. And I know I've I've um, I've muted my notifications and, and mentions from people that I don't follow. I think that's been quite revolutionary. I mean, I get fewer notifications, but I'm not like constantly on it looking. Oh, and also I don't get weird tags and you know if people attack me in some weird corner of the internet i just don't hear about it so i don't propagate it so i'm like yeah whatever so it's been yeah, it's yeah. been pretty good yeah. <laughs> recommend you gotta, you gotta be able to like tie your you know it's sort of odysseus like tying himself to the masks to exactly iron song of like people random 
people with no followers talking shit about you. You've just got to tune that out. Exactly. I mean, if, if someone really big were to come after me, someone would tell me. <laughs> so that's my, that's my bet. And, but at the moment, it's just been, you know, it's just incels. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, I'm, I'm, I love the incels. <laughs> but uh, yeah, who knows? You know, just people, people with, you know, profiles that were, you know, started today. That's usually who, who wants to, to, to come after me. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway, well, thank you so much, Jeff, for coming on to this, you know, fledgling podcast. <laughs> it's going to come out soon. Best of luck with it. I'm, I'm considering doing a podcast myself. So, Awesome. It, awesome. It, yeah, I might check in with you about your experience at some point. Yeah, yeah, please do. I mean, it's still <laughs> still very, um, very gonzo, um, very low production value. Hope, mm-hmm. Hopefully it's going to change. But I also kind of like the fact that it's a bit, you know, rough around the edges. Um, the podcasts that I like have absolutely no production value, so I think it's... Um, you get that subversive feeling that I was talking about. Exactly, you know, just from, live from the bunker. <laughs> cool, well, Jeff, thanks thanks a lot for coming on, and uh, yeah, I shall chat to you on the interwebs. Sounds good. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you. <laughs>